Welcome to another episode of This Week with Sabir. Uh, we have an exciting news uh, today to share with our audience uh, of, and fans of This Week with Sabir. We actually have a sponsor, and, and it's the right kind of a sponsor, right up my, it goes right through my heart. Uh, and it's the, actually the very streaming platform that we are using uh, on every show since the show started. So uh, this, this is. new features and stuff like that. So I highly recommend you guys ch check out Restream.io. And in the in the show description, you'll see a special offer link for our fans uh, from our friends at uh, Restream.io. And they will uh, give you a special offer if you click on that uh, special This Week with Severe link. And today in our hot seat is Brian Matamore. He is the, uh, Brian is the co-founder and chief idea guy of, of Growth Engine Company a 20-year-old uh, innovation and creativity training uh, agency based in Westport. In his marketing consulting uh, career, Brian has managed over 200 successful innovation projects. Let me just give you context here. That's leading over $3 billion with a B in, in new sales. And here's the more impressive thing. One-third th one of the uh, Fortune 100 companies. Uh, and also, Brian, uh, I love books. So Brian is an, is an amazing author. He has uh, written several several uh, uh, best-selling books. Uh, I would like to share one of them here on the screen with you. You guys definitely, it is available on Amazon. You should check it out. It's 21 Days to a Big Idea. We will be discussing this book uh, today during the show. So, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, so that's 21 Days to a Big Idea by Brian Matamore. Um, and... Uh, so, and he, he is a, a cum laude uh, graduate of Dartmouth uh, with a major in psychology, innovation, and, and he's also a marketing instructor at Caltech. Uh, the only thing I know about Caltech, I know it's an amazing uh, institution, but my favorite show is Big Bang Theory, and all of those guys actually <laughs> go to uh, go, go and teach at or, or research at Caltech. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Sabir. And uh, just so your audience audience knows, I'm a marketing and innovation instructor there, but there's no way I could get in, just so you know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for uh, being here. I mean, the thing is, it's uh, uh, we have very um, overlapping circles of friends uh, that recommended uh, uh, us to each other to kind of explore this. And, and the kind of uh, the topic that we will be discussing today would be creating, developing, and launching uh, successful new products and services, especially kind of keeping an eye on, on, on um, uh, ideation, right? So we will, we, you know, first of all, I want to raise my hand and say I've heard terms like ideation, let's brainstorm, let's do whiteboarding session, a lot of fancy schmancy words, right? So, yep. uh, but before we go, go into that, how did you get started? Uh, let's spend like maybe five minutes. How did you get started 20 years ago uh, down this path? Well, I wish it were only 20 years ago. No, actually, I, I appreciate all the experience for more than 20 years. Um, I, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My, my dad was an idea guy. He had been in the ad business. Um, he created uh, Say Pepsi Please tagline, which was a, a radio most successful radio contest ever created. And then he went on to form Sammy, which uh, some of your older audience members may know was became the number two research firm 
in the country behind Nielsen. Uh, he was an entrepreneur, so he didn't get rich. But but what it did for me is it created a love of ideas and entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. And uh, so I would, you know, suck his brain dry every every day that I could and learn his processes. And I became fascinated with it. So really, I've devoted my life to understanding uh, the creative process, but more importantly, how to specifically apply it for real world results. Oh, very cool. Now, I've been involved. I mean, my innovation and, and products and services always has been in, in the e-commerce world. And, and then much later on, uh, then, then came digital, then came uh, social uh, marketing and, and um, you know, audience development and things of that nature and creating products. And the way I view it is very different, you know, the, the way I view it. Because I, I think starting 20 years ago, when you started with that, um, the mechanisms you have today of speeding up that process of testing and learning, I think is phenomenal compared to how much investment you had to do, uh, like let's say 20 years ago. W what are your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with you. The wonderful thing about the digital and e-commerce, quote, new products and services, oh my gosh, you could try, right? You go, go test market these things, do an A-B test or whatever it is, find out which is working and you're off and running. And so the packaged goods guy, Guys, the consumer packaged goods guys, and we've done a lot in those areas. We've worked in all areas, finance, pharma, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they've come to realize that, you know, minimum viable product and, um, you know, uh, sort of quick, quick to market kind of tests uh, make a lot of sense. And so they adapted a lot of that thinking and methodologies because the world is changing so quickly. You know, you it's it's I don't know that you have a luxury in these days to spend a year and a half developing and launching a new product, frankly. No, I, I think in a lot of those kind of situations, it tends to be an opinion of a person, whoever has that powerful title in the room. Right. So let me explain. So yeah. the CMO or the CEO is the smartest person in the room. But th that model has changed into, no, let the audience decide, because we are living in a consumer-centric world. It's no longer brand-centric. Yeah, that's a great insight. And I, you know, I, I, frankly, I think the best clients are uh, look for and are open to the consumer or customer input. Uh, if they're not, they're probably not going to last that long, especially in these times. And so, you know, it's uh, it's been, you know, our, it's, it's ironic that our best clients in some ways need us the least because they understand the processes that we're trying to do, the approaches we take. And we are we are absolutely passionate about, if you will, beginning and ending with the consumer and their input. And they become partners in um, our development work, frankly. Um, so we believe in a lot of qualitative uh, research before we you know, validate it quantitatively. Very cool. Now, uh, by the way, thank you for the book, you know, <laughs> you know, so the audience, you know, I, I do have, I do have that book. Uh, one, one thing I want to, I, I would like you to take us through is what does the ideation process look like uh, when, when, uh, when these clients are going through the process, the, you know, the 21 days to uh, big idea. Right. And, and I love the way the book is actually laid out day by day. Like literally it's one of those, you know, it's like the don't sweat the small stuff, you know, Every day there is there is something there. Uh, I, I love it how it's like builds up over throughout the book. So if you could take us through that, sure. Well, well, thank you. Well, you know there there are actually two processes. One is this twenty one days to a big idea process, 
And then there's our uh, quote client consulting product uh, process, uh, iterative insight mining. But let's focus on 21 days to a big idea because I wrote that specifically for entrepreneurs. Um, and the genesis of this was uh, Bob Dorf, who is famous in the world of lean innovation. He co-wrote Startup Owner's Manual uh, with Steve Blank. He teaches at Columbia and he said to me, you know, my he's a, he's been a friend for many years. And he said to me, you know, my students at Columbia, they're really bright, the entrepreneurial school, but their ideas are, are generally pretty bad, <laughs> frankly. You know, he said, if I'm more a cuisine app, I'm going to shoot myself. And um, and so he said, could you develop a process that would help them get more and better ideas? And so that was the start of it. And I did. And I I presented at Columbia. And then we went over to Moscow, Skolkovo University. And then my literary agent heard me give a talk on it. And she said, well, that should be a book. And I said, well, as you know, I just wrote a book, Idea Stormers. I don't want to write another one. And she said, well, I can. I think I can sell it. You don't have to write a proposal. So I did. And that's that's how that book came about. Um, the basic, oh, there's the idea. Ideas Warmers, yeah. That was the one I had written before, before that, um, which is kind of the master work, frankly, for corporate uh, folks. But for entrepreneurs, two insights that are really important for entrepreneurs, uh, well, maybe more than two. One is certainly you want to be in an area of passion, right? So, mm -hmm. so I start people out in, in, to identify that because. You know, entrepreneurship is hard, and if you if you're creating a business that you don't love or are passionate about it, my feeling is you'll probably fail and you and you'll probably give up. So you should start with the key insight of the book is that you should not start with one idea in your areas of passion. You should really have ten or fifteen or twenty, and so the book uh, brings you through a whole a whole range of creative thinking strategies and processes so that you can develop a big idea, as I call it, every day for 21 days. So at the end of this process, you're going to have 20, you'll probably have 30, uh, quote, ideas. And from those, um, you should be, you'll, you'll for sure have one that's a big idea. The key is you may not know which one it is. And, and in fact, you probably won't. And so that's when you need to start talking to people, do the research, talk to potential uh, consumers and customers, and they'll very quickly tell you which ideas are great and which are, are not so great. Now, um, now, if you if you look at, um, uh, let's, because that, that, that's a scale, right? I mean, you're looking at, yep. you're, you're looking at entrepreneurs, inventors that uh, if they're lucky and, and the product is really good, it ends up on like Shark Tank or Kickstarter or something like that, right? Yes. And on the other hand of it, on, on, and so everything in the middle, but then you have all the way on the other side of it, uh, companies like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Mondelez, you know, and and other types of whether it's CPG companies or it could be even B2B type companies, uh, yeah. they're creating. They they have their process. Does the process change uh, as far as uh, if you're a one person or two person founder team versus a uh, thirty-five billion dollar uh, company? It does in a way. So in the, for the entrepreneur, you know, identified five basic strategies. So one, the obvious one is find a problem and solve it. Um, but others are adapt to technology, figure out ways to help people or organizations self-actualize, figure out ideas to save money or be more efficient. And and, and then another one is, is save time. So those are some basic premises that the entrepreneur use. When we were a Pepsi or CPG company or a pharma company or a service, it doesn't matter. 
um, they usually they have established brands, and often they're trying to extend those brands in unique and sort of wonderful ways. <clears throat> and so then we were are using specific, we call it focused ideation techniques, which is of course an oxymoronic term, right? Uh, the, but the idea is that we will use these different techniques to trigger ideas that could be aligned with either their brands or their particular business. And, and by the way, the, the, you know, the, the techniques in 21 Days to a Big Idea are also the, quote, the techniques we use for our, our corporate clients. So some of those techniques could be, you know, semantic intuition or problem redefinition or questioning assumptions or, or picture prompts or trend triggers, um, you know, and on and on and on. We have dozens and dozens of these techniques uh, we use, and we'll probably uh, talk about a few of those as we work, work through today. Oh, very cool. Now, um, one, one of the things that I have seen, and, and you probably have heard even with, um, like Steve Jobs never surveyed consumers to think w what they would be expecting from an Apple product, right? Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, he went on his own and he said, okay, no, you know, 10 years from now or five years from now, there will be a need for this thing. Well, I'm going to create that thing, right? Actually, yep. if, if you think about the iPod, right? Because that was a big innovation for the company. When they came up uh, with, with the iPod, Apple was the last entry in the MP3 player market, but he didn't even call it an MP3 player, if you remember uh, going back to that period. Uh, so what, what are you... Uh, are, is that is that a, an exception to the to the uh, to the rule, or is it is it what we should be doing all the time? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I get this question a lot because he said, "Hey, I don't believe in in research, right?" And um, yeah. I, you know, and and I understand because if you're you know, it's that famous line, you know, if, if you asked uh, Henry Ford, you know, if you asked them, they'd they'd want a faster horse rather than a car, right? So, but, um, and so when you're talking about stuff that is truly breakthrough and truly, truly revolutionary, as a lot of his, as most of many of his products were, um, it's, it's pretty hard to research them, right? Yeah. And, and you, you kind of, kind of, frankly, make some prototypes and let people use them and see what they think. That's the kind of research you should be doing with truly innovative breakthrough products. Um, you know, most products, not that they're just line extensions, but they're mashups of, of different products, you know. Uh, you know, uh, Dave Moran, one of your former guests, we talked about this appearance today, and he was talking about Lunchables, right? And that was sort of mm -hmm. a mashup of, uh, you know, it was convenient. You, you have a sandwich and you have a dessert. And, and uh, that, that, but that was, that was an important uh, CPG product, and that became a half a billion dollar business. Uh, because it combined these things and it met a true consumer need, which was convenience for the mom, and it's loved it. So um, my feeling is that talk about all the elements that you have to get right: the price, the package, the promotion, the positioning, where it's placed, how it's distributed. You need to get all those elements right for two reasons. Um, one is if you don't, you're going to have a failure and we can talk of some, about some of our failures, but as important, integrate the brand, right? I mean, if you have a Chips Ahoy cookie and we helped them in, invent brownie Chips Ahoy, if you don't get it right, you know, and it's a big failure in, in the marketplace, that's not good, you know? 
So, so, and, and we get it right by iteratively talking to consumers. We go back and forth, back and forth. And you do that three or four times in qualitative research. At some point, you're going to figure out whether you really got something or not. Yeah. So in your book, you identify the five big idea thinking strategies for entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. What are these and how do you know uh, they work? Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, if you watch Shark Tank, the number one, you know, one is find a problem and solve it, right? <laughs> and so the technique in the book there is, okay, you know, it's, it's like, like writing a comedy routine. If you're not taking notes down, you're not going to get triggered for ideas. So it's part of the process there is to write down, you know, over a few days, 20 different problems. So what are some problems? You know, I'm sweating a little bit on TV, on TV right now. So that's a problem, you know? I, uh, I can't breathe well at night. And so that leads to breathe right nasal strips. I mean, you know, I can't tell if the chicken in the refrigerator is, uh, is spoiled. And so I smell it, but maybe there's a spoil meter, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it can be these little everyday problems um, that can lead to huge uh, businesses. You know, breathe right nasal strips is a $100 million business. So that's one strategy. Um, one of my favorites is adaptive technology. Um, so what you do is you just become very of all the technologies that are out there. Um, in the book, I give an example of a guy who created a $12 bike. Um, he, uh, he used treated, specially treated cardboard uh, that would not disintegrate in the rain and was able to create um, a bicycle that could be made for $12, right? Well, mm -hmm. if you read that and you're creative and you're looking for opportunities, you say, well, what other ways can I use that treated cardboard to create new inventions. So this could be, you know, uh, it, it, it could be uh, uh, examples I gave in the book. Uh, I think I called it a, rec a recreation center, a fun center or something where you have, um, you know, uh, carts for kids. What, what do we call them? Strollers, right? You yeah. could do a stroller that's like disposable almost, right? And the kid can draw a thing. Or you could take cardboard and you can make flip-flops out of it. And maybe you imprint the kid's name on the bottom of the flip-flop. So when they're walking in the sand, uh, it leaves their footprints, uh, it will leave their name in the sand. So if they walk off, you can track them down, literally, et cetera, et cetera. So is to be aware of techno technological advances and use those uh, to create new products. Um, and then, of course, uh, self-actualizing, helping people self-actualize in this time is a huge opportunity, you know, lumosity or whatever. You know, did these brain tests to help people self-actualize? Saving money is always a good one, and uh, saving people time is always another good one. And and there are examples in in throughout the book uh, because I gave myself the challenge when I wrote that that book. I said, if this that I'm going to create really works, I should be able to work it on myself and come up with a big idea every day, which is what I did. You know. Um, one of the one of the best I thought new services that I, I'm sure will appear shortly if it hasn't already. You know, I read an article in the Times about um, how people are becoming you know medical tourists, right? They go get operations overseas. Well, I came mm -hmm. up with a dozen or twenty different ways to exploit that here in the U.S. by offering a service around being able to get cheaper operations overseas, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you, like even even. Um at least in the past 20 years, with all of the different types of challenges we have had as human beings, right? We, we, we had the 9-11, then we had the recession, then we had the global recession, uh, the financial meltdown, <laughs> and now 
we're going through a pandemic, right? Yeah. Every one of those oper- uh, every one of those periods, I think, generated an amazing amount of innovation for for people who actually took the took it and said, "Oh, you know what? Adversity. Here's an opportunity uh, for me to take that adversity and turn it into an opportunity." Right? For example, That's I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of um, a company that everybody it's in everybody's mouth right now, including my grandmother. Right? Is hmm. Zoom. Let's have a Zoom call, right? Uh, yep. I've been using Zoom for three years. You know, nobody knew about Zoom. Everybody uh, used WebEx. I, I had issue, some issues with WebEx, uh, so I, I pivoted towards uh, an alternative and I went with Zoom, and I, that and it was pretty reliable for me. So yep. that's what I started using, right? And then they went from having 10 million active users in a month. I think that was their peak. Yeah. Uh, during during pandemic, I think it jumped to like 200 million, <laughs> uh, including the education system using it to deliver classes for teachers to deliver classes to their students and stuff like that. Well, you know, so it's it's, it's yeah. the stuff like that you take, what where you think it's adversity, you turn it into an opportunity, and it could be even you know it's interesting you're talking about the self actualization right there. Yes. I might have a, some sort of a disability or handicap or anything like that, you know, that if I look at it and beat myself up and say, oh, that and, and, and uh, turn it into an opportunity. So not, I'm not only helping myself, but I'm helping 5 million other people. Yeah. Well, I actually wanted to talk about your Zoom thing, you know, because uh, in my world, um, you know, we were facilitating 100 ideation sessions a year. Right. And obviously these were all in-person sessions before the pandemic. But, you know, so what do you do? And thank goodness the technology showed up in time because we now have become, quote, experts uh, at doing virtual ideation sessions. And as it turns out, an article I I wrote about that we, there are actually some advantages to it. Um, and so that's a case of, you know, having to pivot, but but leveraging the, the technology exists and exploiting that. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I think technology helped us during this period speed up a lot of things. And the adoption, yes, yes. the adoption rate of technology across the masses, not just tech people, niche people, agency people, but across the board, everybody, right? Uh, that even news anchors were giving their news. And I, it's funny, I when I see the news clips, I actually can tell if they're using Skype, Google Meet, I can tell just because wow. I have that eye. You know, I, I know that that's what they're using. And news anchors are using that and they're using their phone to, to report. At the end of the day, the reporting is more important than fancy equipment, you know, in that scenario. And yes. I see that the adoption has gone, like the stuff that I would ex- experience and I would think that I would experience the adoption in, Let's say 15 years from now, it caught up in 2020. I would be—I was expecting it in 2035. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, education is a perfect example. I mean, it's been—it's been, you know, ripe for for disruption. But because of the pandemic, um, the disruption is occurring so much faster. And so, uh, you know, education will never be the same as a result of the pandemic because we've been forced to speed it up. The parents are, are not happy paying 60, 70 grand a year to have their kids be on Zoom calls. You know? So, they, so, they, so the, the universities have to reinvent themselves based on uh, what technology is enabling now. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you're paying, to your point, like uh, a massive tuition, right? Yep. Uh, versus, comp you know, th there have been universities that have existed, like University of Phoenix, as an example, has yeah. existed for, for a long while as an online school, primarily for people who work and, and they want to they wanna have an uh, opportunity to educate themselves on their own time, not having to attend class and stuff yeah. like that. It's funny that now the entire world is uh, an online university called Zoom University, you know? Yeah, I mean, my my one of my daughters is at um, you know uh, an online university, and the other is uh, getting her master's at in instructional de design. She actually works for a company that creates online courses. And she's getting her master's at uh, Northeastern, and of course, they're all virtual. You know, obviously, right? So yeah, it's it's funny in New York uh, when we were opening up, we wanted to uh, do half and half because my kids go to college too; they're almost ready to graduate. Uh, and uh, uh, initially, when we got the first alert, it said, "Oh, it's going to be hybrid model. Half of uh, half of uh, courses will be at home, and the other half would be in person." And then at the first day of school started. Some of those classes that were supposed to be, uh, you know, in person got canceled. And they right. said, "Here's the alternative. Everybody's going to go on on uh, online learning because we're not expecting anybody to come into the campus." You know, and, and then 100% it went offline yeah. or actually online in that scenario. Um, one one thing I want to, uh, one value that I like delivering to the audience is actually working through uh, an actual example uh, where yeah. we can take yeah. them through the through your process. Uh, and uh, you have you have like <laughs> 33 or 35 of the Fortune 100 companies, right, in, in your portfolio. You can, it's to your choosing, whichever one you like to choose, let's walk them through a, like a new product success that, that was created using your process in, in, in your tenure. Uh, okay, so maybe I'll, I mean, geez, I, oh, you know, I could talk about brownie chips, oh, I could talk about Craftsman Laserette sockets, I could talk about Entenmann's uh, mini cakes, uh, but maybe maybe I will talk about the Craftsman project. Uh, you know, we got some tool guys out there, I'm sure. That was a really fun one. They, they came to us and said, uh, ratchets, wrenches, and sockets is a huge business. It's, you know, $300 million business. Um, actually, Danaher tool, Danaher made the tools for Craftsman at the time. And so they were our client. They supplied them to Sears. Um, so... Um, to reinvent this this whole world of ratchets, wrenches, and sockets because it's kind of a mess. You go in there and you say, do I get the 120-piece count? Do I get the 250-piece count? But it's a hugely profitable business. We couldn't understand that, by the way, because they have lifetime guarantees on this. If the thing breaks, you bring it in. And But um, the, the way we, we, we actually did several things for them. One of those, uh, by the way, when we start, we will often talk to experts or heavy users to help educate us. So we went to and talked to mechanics and, and guys who really knew a lot about using ratchets, wrenches, and sockets. But then what we did, which might be interest to the audience, we talked to, oh my gosh, probably 10 or 15 different groups of people. So female uh, women uh, who use tools, and that's become a huge trend, right? What are the problems they have? What are the needs? What are the wishes that they have? And by the way, the women would say um, to their husbands, don't touch my tools. <laughs> they get the tools and they say, "Don't touch my tools." 
but maybe they need to be lighter or um, you know easier for the hand or whatever. Uh, we talk to tuners, guys who are in the business that, or, you know, they, they tune up their cars or Hispanic guys who use it as a social event often, um, you know, to, to sit around with the guys who are drinking beers and they're, a lot of these guys are, are cars. Um, but then we also find that they're motorcycle guys who want specific tools for them or boat guys who want specific ratchet wrenches and stuff. So in itself created dozens and dozens of opportunities. Another one was, um, you know, different uh, wishes or segments. Or So one of them was a gift set. You know, somebody moves in the neighborhood, you get a $25, $50 gift set that you can give to somebody, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we created, frankly, dozens and dozens of new products, ones that, that'll fit uh, appropriately in your truck, right? Because now people want two and three and four sets of these tools. Um, so that that was pretty straightforward, but boy, it was a lot of fun uh, building these these. Sets. The one uh, new product that I'll share that's really cool um, was um, you know you can imagine yourself you're fixing your car you're underneath it right, and what's the deal? Yeah, give me a three eighths socket right, and and what's the problem? If we go back to this problem thing, what's the problem when you're under your car? The problem is that in a lot of cases you can't read the damn size right. They're stamped in, they're really small. And you can't, well, geez, what, is that a three-eighths or a one-quarter? I, I can't really tell, right? And so um, the company had developed, quote, laser etch sockets. And so the size is huge, right? And we brought this to the, the buyer at Sears, said, and it would be, you know, 10 to 15% more, right? And he said, people are not going to pay that much more for these. And so uh, we're not really interested. But we said, wait a second, let's just, I tell you what, let's do some qualitative. You sit in the back room and, and we'll bring in some consumers and see what they think. And the consumers went crazy. Ape for, they said, oh my gosh, you've solved the huge, oh my God, 100% more. I'd pay 30, 40, 50% more. And so they went crazy. And to the buyer's credit, he said, wow. And so he then, um, he launched them, they launched right away and it became a big success for them. So that's, I think, a good example of some of the principle. And we had wish techniques. We had customer role plays. You know, that was a really good combination of the qualitative research and the different ideation techniques we used. Um, but, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's a really good example, too, of, of how important it is to go talk to consumers because they can be an ally. Frankly, if you're at a big corporation and you're trying to get some people to, to say yes to one of your projects, if you have some consumer research and enthusiasm and passion, you can often talk them into that. Uh, I mean, given, given, yeah, the, given the world that we uh, live in right now, that makes it so much easier. I mean, you could, you could create a virtual product, right? It's not even real. Yeah. You have a nice photograph. You have nice 3D animation. You add and and see and a landing page. See what people. Uh, you know, you go like, we, we're working on this. And the entire platform of Kickstarter is based on that, basically, right? Yes, we want to yes. create this thing, right? If yep. you believe in the video and the photos that we're showing you in the description, if you believe in that, support us so that we can make this thing, right? Whatever that, that thing is, right? So in this day and age, for you to take an idea and test it, even as an entrepreneur, right? And, uh, you know, to kind of see, is it going to work? 
it's a lot easier to do that today with all of the digital tools that are at your disposal now and audiences that you could go after. Absolutely. So, you know, you know, a day of classic qualitative research might be 20 grand. Well, as an entrepreneur, you certainly don't have to do that. First of all, you can make, we call them ugly prototypes, right? And, and we have our clients, like we were working with Dr. Scholes inventing new inserts. And these were, uh, you know, Dreamwalk, Fresh and Coolins, insoles and all this kind of, we can't, a lot of really cool stuff came out of that work. Um, and they said to us, yeah, we can 3D print uh, prototypes for you guys. Uh, and then we said, no, 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 we don't want that. Those are too finished. We want what we call prototypes. So we make them out of cardboard and tape, you know, <laughs> and, and, and duct tape. Now, why would we do that? It's because if the pro prototype is too finished, people say, yeah, I should, I think it should be red versus blue. You know, you're yeah. not getting good insights. If it's ugly, They'll say, oh, yeah, you should move that a little bit, make that higher. I want to make sure, you know, you know, it goes around my arch, whatever it is. And so for consumers or, or excuse me, entrepreneurs, they it's easy to do these ugly prototypes now. Um, now, the other thing is you're absolutely right. There are tremendous services. One of them is uh, 1Q. We uh, tested concepts with them because they have the you test the concepts on smartphones. Um, we've we've given them a concept to test, and we had a full um, study and report uh, after. You know how long we got that study and report back? Uh, we had them test a concept we were working on um, with 200 consumers. You know how long it took us to get a full report on that test? I take I, a guess. I, I would guess a week or two, maybe. Yeah, it was eight minutes. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> I was close. Two weeks is eight minutes. <laughs> it was eight minutes because they have a panel of a million consumers with smartphones. They put it out there. You know, the consumers, the 200 consumers responded. They had the results. It went into their algorithm and template, and we got the report back eight minutes later. So that's how, and it's cheap. You know, it might be uh, two or four or five hundred dollars to test that. So. The, the the world of testing has changed dramatically also, as you can imagine. And it really helped do our work, you know, quicker, faster, better, cheaper. So one of, the, I mean, we, it's great that we're talking about successes, right? Now, you know, and I know, right? Uh, failure is part of the game, right? You have to Absolutely. embrace failure. Everybody yes. says that. Gary Vee says it. You have to embrace failure and learn from it. By the way, the, the failure failure rate is for new products and services is close to what 80, 90 percent, right? Yeah. That's that's a humongous number. Yeah. Given that, given the you know those are the kind of things you're going at, you know against, right? It's it's your yeah. 80 to 90 percent, but I, the way I look at it, 10 to 20 percent, it's going to succeed, you know. Yeah. So yeah. let's say 80 to 90 percent, it uh, it fails, and people are telling me to embrace failure and learn from it. Uh, given all of those things and and your years of experience. What were some of your learning moments in your life, you know, when, when, when things just didn't go the way you had hoped or planned based on all of the work, all the process, everything? Yeah, so let me set this up. So if we do an ideation session to invent a new chips of light cookie, I'm picking, you know, uh, sort of product, uh, you know, concrete examples here. You know, we might generate 200 ideas, right, in a day, let's say. Of those, maybe 20 are really of interest and the client says, yeah, I think there's something here we might then bring 18 of those to testing, right? 
of those 18, maybe eight sound really, really, consumers get excited where it's meeting a different need. A lot of products fail because it's just a, a little line extension. It's not, it, it, people don't care, right? Um, in this case, the one that came out that was a huge success and became a platform was, uh, you know, Brownie Chips Ahoy, you know, putting a brownie, a layer of brownie inside a chocolate chip cookie. Oh my gosh, people went zoo. So we saw the passion. We knew they, they loved it. Uh, but that was, you know, one out of 200 ideas. So, so just by definition, you're, and, and we wouldn't have known there was great passion unless we'd gone to consumers and saw how passionate they were. Okay. So that's the first thing. You got to have a lot of ideas to get some really good ones. That's just the nature of the game, but you're not going to launch the bad ones. Right. So you got to know which, you got to know which, which ones to put your chips against. So that dramatically increases your success rate. The other thing is you want to make sure you get the price and the package and the positioning and all that stuff correct. So let me give you an example of a failure um, that uh, is also in the, the bread or dessert world. Uh, we were working on, um, and I can share this because this was uh, a number of years ago, and so it's not confidential now. Um, we were working with Thomas's English Muffins. We were their innovation agency at the time. And we had a concept that's called bagel holes. And the idea was you'd have these small holes, you know, bagel holes, right? But in shape. So for boys, and we did a lot of testing on this. We, uh, hearts, moons, and stars for girls, for little, girl, for little girls, and footballs, basketball, and baseballs for, for boys, right? And um, by the way, I'll never forget some consumer research we did in Columbus, Ohio with a four and five-year-olds are like they're crawling under the table, right? And this this little boy said, I said, well, what do you think of these? He said, I love them. I love these. You know, it's, it's really cute. Anyway, so um, we had this unbelievably, uh, it was a tremendous winning idea, okay? And um, But we could not get the price value equation right because moms don't want to spend five bucks on a bunch of bagel holes that a kid's going to eat in one setting, right? You know, she's going to buy mini bagels or big bagels that's going to last for five or 10 or 15 uh, eating occasions. And we had said, you know, we we should not launch these until we get the price value equation to the point where it makes sense. And, um, you know, we just, for whatever reason, we couldn't couldn't talk them out of there. And it was launched and, and it failed. And uh, it broke our hearts because it's still a really great idea, but it's a matter of getting the price value equation right. The other the other example of, of a failure I'll share was um, just because it's Thomas's as well. It was corn English muffins. And they, I don't know if you've ever had a corn English muffin from Thomas's in these you know current times. That it's oh my God, it's it's absolutely delicious. Well we were testing these and consumers said the same thing. Oh my God, this is unbelievable. Um, you know, the smells and the rooms and they said, oh my gosh, I'll you know pay all this money for it. I'm excited. And we had tested, quote, lab samples, right? Mm -hmm. So all the, all the uh, PhD scientists and food uh, technologists had created these unbelievable products. And that's what we were testing. They launched, though, products, you know, mass produced that didn't have the same quality. And so that was a tremendous learning that we have to make sure we align those. So the product failed because it wasn't good enough. But two years later, it was reintroduced and we figured out how to you know, uh, translate the lab sam samples into a mass-produced product, and then it, it did become a big hit. So those are two examples of failures where it's it's about getting the details right. Um, let me give you one last one. Uh, it was it was for Entenmann's, also owned by Bimbo now, uh, 
and uh, and they uh, we had um, many uh, many cakes, right? Because um, consumers didn't want to buy the big sheet cakes anymore; they wanted mini cakes. So um, we did those, and we had them in a circular form, right? And consumers said, "These are fantastic. We love them. Would you buy them?" Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then one of the um, food technologists at Entenmann said, "I wonder if they should be square, so they look like they're cut off the cake a little bit." And uh, we compared those and tested them. And consumers said, "Why would you ever do a round one? They should be square." And so that's a case where I think it would have succeeded in round, but it was the details and the continuous iterative process of testing and optimizing that led to the, the huge success. And if you look at the Entenmann shelf now, a lot of the, most of their product, or many of them are handheld now, so. Very cool. Now, uh, while you were talking about failure, one, one thing that came to my mind is th there, there has been a lot of interesting innovation when, the in the original intent right the original new product that yeah. some company wanted to come up with failed right 100% failed but yeah. what it ended up producing is some sort of a, either a byproduct or completely a different product that they had never intended uh, for that product to exist at all yeah. i mean there are so many examples of it you know yeah. uh, like you know a donut and a donut hole right yeah Yes. That was being thrown out and turning turning into what, what do you call that? I don't I don't eat that stuff, so I don't know. Right, right, the donut right. holes are called what? Muffins, munchkins, munchkins, yeah, right? Munchkins from uh, from Dunkin' Donuts or whatever. Yep. yep. Uh -huh. Yep. So, um, have you seen like when you those kinds of things? Those kind of insights come through either uh, through very careful observation when you are going through the project, yeah. or people writing off that oh no, it was a failure. The original thing we said it was a failure, right? Yeah. Versus you know, observing and and then postmortem, right? Like, why did it fail? What yeah. what did we learn from this process and stuff like that? You know? Yeah. Um. You know, one of the and this is not exactly what you're talking about, but it's a good example of of sort of not giving up and taking bad news. And it's all about the learning, frankly. You know, what did you learn from the experience of what you were doing? Uh, we were working with Schick, and they and uh, we were doing innovation audits and new product work for them. And um, the people there um, had invented uh, the Intuition Razor for women. And they uh, were trying to get the management to launch this thing, and they wouldn't. And so they would do a lot of testing and get all kinds of failures. But internally, which was really smart, they didn't report the failures to senior management. They just, you know, they took that as learning and then would sort of report and let go through the grapevine of the organization. Oh this was a big success and that was a success and the name tested well and all the rest and so when there became a hole in the launch calendar the senior manager said hey i've heard good things about that intuition razor maybe we should go launch that well if if they hadn't been very clever about you know not hiding their failures but using their failures as learning opportunities that thing never would have made it to market and became one of their most successful new products in the past 10 years so the, the point here, I think, for the listeners is that this new product development is an iterative process. And, and every step of the way should be seen as, as learning in all facets of the product. Absolutely. And, and um, not just the product, but also the process. Like when you go yeah, through a certain yeah. process, even though the product that you were trying to push for failed, but what happened was that process from point A to point B 
when you had to tweak it in order to get some sort of output, you improved it by 25%. And wow, wow, that's incredible. Now your production is so much faster and, and you're producing things more efficiently. You, you should be mindful of those kinds of things too, not just not just go like, oh, you know, this, I, I needed to create this light bulb, it failed, that's it. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I should just give yeah. up and go home, you know? Yeah, I mean, like a, a good example of that was my business partner and engine co-founder, Gary Fraser, um, when he did Mented and uh, Toothpaste for Unilever and it became uh, product of the year and it became a $250 million business, they had all these problems come up. And one of them was, you know, there's too much plastic in this thing. It was dual, you know, dual delivery system. And so they took that problem as an opportunity and they said, let's invent refills. And, and the refill business, to your point, because they were creative at each step of the way and used these processes to come up with new ideas, the refill business, it became the, the biggest refill product in the history of health and beauty care products because they were smart enough to say, okay, we got a problem, let's go solve it, let's be creative about that. An another example, when again, because of the innovation agency work we did with, with Thomas's and uh, now Bimbo and they own Arnold and Fryhoffers and Stroman and uh, Sara Lee, they own all, all those brands. One of the problems was that people, uh, shop automatically for new products or products at a supermarket. Like if you want bread, you don't even look, you're sort of grab and go, right? And so we said, well, that's a big problem because in the case of Thomas's, you know, over half their consumers knew they made English muffins, but they didn't know they made prepackaged bagels. They're the largest prepackaged bagel company in the country. Half their consumers didn't know it. Oh my God, what a problem, right? So, but that's, that's an opportunity. So we went to Walmart and they created in 250 super centers, a, a, a display that said, what's hot and baking. And it became an opportunity to, to highlight their new products to stop that automatic grab and go shopping behavior. The bigger point here, Sabir, is that all these problems, if you see them as creative opportunities and learning opportunities, that's really what innovation is about. And all the techniques we use can be used not only to come up with the big idea, but to solve those problems as you go down the innovation process is the point. Well, when do you, uh, in your process, when do you tackle, let's say, you know, you have the scientist, the inventor sitting yep. there tinkering, doing their thing, right? Yep. They're doing their thing, but there's a whole other skill set to understand product positioning, yes. how to even name the product, like why would people, you know, cause it, it, it even, I mean, there are examples of like uh, uh, Ford Nova, right? Yes. You, you can't no sell that in South, you can't <laughs> yeah. sell that in South America, right? right. right. So uh, even Ford has had challenges, right? So it's not, it's not, it's not kind of foreign thing, but it's, it's something that in that process, when do you, where do you, and when do you uh, consider product positioning and also the other ancillary things that has nothing to do with invention but it's part of the invention process and innovation process, like product naming is an example, you know? Yeah, we, geez, we've done a lot of naming and naming is really tough as you, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure the listeners know, I, I tell this story of trying to name a new uh, strawberry and fudge ice cream for Ben and Jerry's and it was a new, uh, a full day new product ideation session uh, to invent novelties, you know, like not bonbons, but Ben Ben's, you know, that's a cool idea, right? Anyway. We had a half hour to name this new strawberry and fudge ice cream. So the way we did that was um, I said, well, what's the essence of Ben and Jerry's? I said, well, it's all about 
they're anti-authoritarian. So I said, what could be some anti-authoritarian triggers? Because I knew I had to trigger the people because we only had a half hour. So the way I triggered them, I triggered them with anti-authoritarian words. In this case, it was slang. And so I got slang dictionaries, cut them up into pieces, pass those out and use those to trigger names. And that led to the name Stafus, strawberries naturally all fudged up, which became a huge, you know, a, a success for them. And we did it in a half hour. Um, the point there though was we had to use, and, and this is true of all our ideation work, you've got to use stimuli to trigger people, people's brains. Now to answer your question about um, when do you do this stuff, um, I think it's really, really important if you can pull it off to have cross-functional teams involved from the very beginning of the process. So you want the engineers, you want the finance guys in there, you want the sales guys in there to have been part of the, uh, certainly the ideation, but then as you work through this process, to have them be part of the team so they can input and give you your, your ideas as you're working through it. Now you need specialists, obviously. You need marketing people, you need salespeople, you need the food technologists, you need the engineers. They all need to be part of this team if you're going to succeed with it. And if you're an entrepreneur, you just got to go find these people. You know, you, you get your third cousin who's a mechanic to make this thing for you or whatever, right? That's what uh, being an entrepreneur is all about. But in corporate America, it's critical to get your, your uh, you know, these cross function, get every, as many people as you can involved so they feel ownership and passion and will help you solve this thing. You know, when Gary was doing Mentident, they couldn't figure out how to make the container. The engineers couldn't solve it. Well, the guys on the line solved it, right? How to how to manufacture this thing. So that's 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 critical. It's the cross functionality um, that you want that that'll help you succeed at the end of the day. Um, uh, one of the other things that I see uh, when when you have that brainstorming session in your organization, whether it's for new product, new service, or even solving problems, right? Yep. It, it tends, to, you, you have, um, there are different labels for people, right? People who are very proactive and they speak speak up in, in groups versus people who are very passive and they don't, they think more and they internalize it. They write their thoughts down before saying a, uh, the one word. Yeah. Like there, there are different personalities, but I'm not saying that one does a better job than the other. You need both, you know? You want the person keep on putting stuff up on the whiteboard, right? And you also need the person who is very thoughtful about about what they will say the next thing that's coming out, out of their mouth. When, when you have these kind of uh, brainstorming sessions, and especially in a scenario where you have cross-functional teams, how do you, like one, one of the things I learned, uh, I, I worked with Gary Vaynerchuk at, at VaynerMedia, right? Yep. And, yep. and the, the team there actually does a phenomenal job when whenever we did uh, brainstorming, it didn't matter if your title had a C-level uh, title or SVP or you were the most junior person, right? Mm -hmm. Or an intern, doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is has to stand by itself and no idea is really bad. We're just brainstorming. Let's put this stuff up on the board. Yep. And the way you, what, what they want you to do is they would like you to actually add on to whatever has been said, not replace it, not go like, oh, that's a stupid idea. Don't. Just right. erase that from the whiteboard. You don't want that person in the room, you know, yeah. because the thing is it's supposed to be more productive and very open so that you never know where the idea is gonna come from. Otherwise, you shut down people too when when you when you when somebody gets up and goes like that's so stupid, it's wrong, whatever, you know, uh, you know, I don't know why we're doing this. 
that that's a very a lot of negativity so what kind of from from a people standpoint because that people always get in the way you know so from <laughs> a people standpoint what are your thoughts about the process of ideation and and uh, and, and brainstorming and such yeah well thank you for that question because I, I spent my whole career trying to solve those kinds of problems you know the introverts and extroverts and the, the senior vice president versus the intern and all those kind of things and the, one of the tricks we use, for instance, is, well, first of all, you need stimuli. So you need to trigger people's brains with all the stimuli. We can talk about that. Uh, not unlike the, you know, the, the uh, slang dictionary to trigger connections. But beyond that, um, for instance, we create a technique called triggered brainwalking. And so, and we'll start, you know, 80 or 90% of our sessions with these. What we'll do is we'll, 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 we'll create ideation stations around the room. So if you have 20 people in the room, we might have 10 ideation stations. Two people go to each station and they're, and maybe you trigger them with wishes or role plays or picture prompts or whatever against the challenge you're working on. They write ideas down, right? So it's just the two of them. And so the introverts love that because they're not, you know, you know they don't feel embarrassed or afraid to write ideas down. And also the extroverts are not taking over the meeting, right? So they're, they're, they're at their station. So everybody writes some ideas down, then you rotate, like idea volleyball. You rotate, you rotate, you rotate again. You rotate four or five times, you got 10 stations. All of a sudden you have 50 ideas in about 15 minutes, right? Then you go back to your original station, look at some of the builds that the other people had, you circle those ideas, and then that, that team can share their ideas with the group as a whole. And then to your uh, severe, then you start building together. Uh, that that bit about your thought about no bad ideas, then you build on them. And so that's a trick we will often use to make sure that the introverts uh, have as much or as, are, are able to be as productive as the extroverts. The, the simple uh, uh, recommendation here is continually do team breakouts. And that way you optimize the introvert extrovert thing and you're getting all kinds of ideas and you wanna change it. So a different technique and next time you use, you know, semantic intuition, word combination technique, next time you use picture prompts, and then you change the, the group. So, you know, in Brainwalk, you had two people. You break out with picture prompts or trend triggers, and you have three or four people. Then you do with six people, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's the dynamic of changing uh, who's working with whom that, that gets over the, the issue you're talking about. So one of the things that happens is, is bound to happen in this process, right? Yeah. I'm stuck. What do I yeah. do? I'm yeah. stuck. So what are some of the techniques that you would recommend for me to get unstuck or for my team to get unstuck when we get stuck with, yeah. with ideation? Uh, we've got dozens of them, but one of the easiest and most fun ones is uh, if they're really stuck. I mean, hopelessly stuck, you know, ready to kill each other because they're stuck. Um, you can leverage that feeling in the room of, of failure, if you will, and use a technique we created called worst idea technique. So, okay, stop, stop, stop. I want you to come up with not good ideas now, but the worst possible ideas you can think of. So, oh my gosh, well, we could, we could uh, shoot the person. Okay, what else could you, shoot him and kidnap him. Okay, what else? Shoot him and kidnap and tie him up and, and, and then ransom him. Okay, you know, until you get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you, you know, maybe generate 20 of those terrible ideas. And then what do you do? You go back and you look at those terrible ideas and say, as bad as it is, can we turn somehow use that as inspiration to turn into a good idea? And there are two strategies for doing that. 
the whites went on, the two strategies for doing that. Uh, one is um, do the opposite, which is not always possible or interesting. You know, what's the opposite of kidnap them? Don't kidnap them. It's not that interesting. The the more interesting one offline, is- Offline, by the way, Brian, offline, you and I will talk about why you're using that example. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, so then, um, you know, as you say, as, as, as bad as it is, what can I turn out into a good idea? So if, you, if it were, you know, throw up soup, well, maybe that leads to the idea of a soup for patients who can't keep something down or soup with body parts in it. Maybe that becomes a, you know, a zombie Halloween soup, et cetera, et cetera. And I tell you, as frivolous as this sounds and ridiculous, it's a very effective and productive technique for generating big ideas. I'll give you one other version that we created off of that. We're working with the ASPCA in New York City on getting, it's a long story, I'll make it short, but it was how to get New Yorkers to adopt ex-drug dealers pit bulls who had been retrained. Good luck with that, right? That's a marketing challenge. And instead of worst I did deal, we did, we change it because we, you know, kill the dog. You know, we don't want to do that. We did silly idea. So that's another version of it um, that gives people the freedom to just be as creative as they, oh, silly, we'll, we'll dress them up in costumes or, you know, that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden you'll find that that really, it, it almost never fails in releasing the, because why are you failing? You're failing because you've thought of stuff before, you're not thinking differently, because there's fear factor, because you you know you don't have stimuli, and and you know worst idea and silly idea work at all those levels to break through in people's brains. And then this is just one of dozens we use, but that's a really good example, I think. I mean, one one example I've used with my clients as well as uh, other companies that I'm, is uh, to think about what would put us out of business. Great, love it. You know, yes. what, what yes. would put us out of out of business? Let's think and reverse engineer. Like, what can we do? Like, let's say if we were the comp competition of our company. Yes. What absolutely. can we do to put us out of business? Let's go through that thought thought process, and then when you go through that thought process, first it shocks you, right? Yes. Oh my God, I don't want to lose my job, right? Right. But and we don't want to We don't want thousands of people or hundreds of people to lose their job. But then you start thinking about. Um, you know, all of the things that maybe com competitors or, or maybe adjacent industries are doing to your industry that you could learn from, you bring, you start thinking about those kinds of things. And now, now something that one, you were stuck, it helps you unstuck. And yeah. plus it might even in that process, give you a, a very innovative ideas that you may abandon the original idea that you were doing. And, and, you might, uh, you know, you, you said earlier, it's 200 ideas, it's not one, you know? it's <laughs> and, and I love that, so thank you for sharing that. Two builds on, or two versions, other ways to do that technique. One is to say, if we did a joint venture with, with somebody, you know, if we did a joint venture with LinkedIn or Amazon or whomever, what products or services could we create? So that's a good, another version of what you're talking about. And the one that we use uh, quite a bit, we this is a, a program we offer. It's called Disruptive Wargaming, where we have companies role play the competition. And and this is a usually a two day event, sometimes with thirty to fifty people, and we create teams. So a, a good example of this was VSP, they're the largest vision care insurance company. And so you know they had record sales. How do you get them to change when they have record sales? It's almost impossible. 
we did disruptive wargaming sessions where we had them role playing Amazon, Google, and Walmart in addition to their classic competitors, you know, Luxottica, Essilor, et cetera. And those teams, by the way, the, and the teams really get into it. Like the Amazon team, you know, one guy gets to be Jeff Bezos. They use drones to spy on the other teams. You know, it's fun. But they figure out what their strategies would be if they entered the vision care insurance business. And, and you quickly realize when, when they're role playing that, oh my gosh, if Amazon entered this business or Walmart or Google, they could put us out of business. And so therefore you develop competitive strategies and new projects to deal with that. And it's unbelievably powerful. Again, especially if you have people and companies that are extraordinarily successful and not that open or willing to change. After they do this exercise, I will tell you, um, a bunch of us salespeople came God, I had no idea. I'm going to sell in an entire because I realized we have to we have to be closer and more humble with our our clients about the services we offer. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing so much knowledge and dropping so much knowledge on on on. I feel the like we're just getting started. Yeah, we we will definitely do another session. What I would, what I would ask you, I, I, and you have delivered tr tremendous amount of value here. What is your number one, based on your years of experience? What is your number one hundred thousand dollar expert insight into the creation process and launch process of new products and services? What's your number one? I think number one is um, your idea should be twenty ideas. <laughs> That's the first thing because I, I see so many entrepreneurs they have one idea idea committed to that one idea not that they shouldn't be committed and it should be an area of passion for sure it's something you should be passionate about that just one idea you're much less likely to change because you're so invested in that one idea so you may get five or ten ideas around the same area and and one way to do that is to think of who when hows and whys for instance could we have a different who different people we're selling to, different way we're distributing, et cetera, et cetera. So even if it's just one idea, have 20 versions of that idea so that so that when you go out to test that idea, um, you're actually out there trying to learn about what people really want rather than trying to sell them on your idea. Because if they don't like your idea, you're out of business. You don't have anything, right? So my, my biggest piece of advice is, you know, have more um, and then the subset of that an important element of that is when you go talk to people you're out there to learn and and you have to be humble and open and willing to take really negative feedback but the point then is to use that negative feedback to maybe evolve your idea as you were saying before and that could be really great and boy i'll tell you when you get something's really great and people are passionate and excited you know we saw this with soy and people saying you know, I I do research. I say, well, what do you want any chips ahoy? Why would you buy that? I, I I actually ran into a consumer at the at the shop at, at the store who was buying it. And I I said, why'd you buy it? She goes, she was an idiot. And she said, it's a brown chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> so you know, I mean, what more do you want? And and so you see passion and interest and energy. And if you don't have that for your new product and service. You may not be done, and so you you got to you want to the, the the single most important piece of advice is spend more time upfront 
in the ideation phase, um, you know, ra and rather than going prematurely to launch. You know, it's like the Warby Parker guys, they, they spend months and months figuring out position uh, before they launched. And so that's, that's my, my biggest piece of advice for people. Thank you, Brian, for, for being a guest on the show. Really appreciate you and, and all of the advice that you have given us. Um, and thank you, audience, uh, for joining us. I, I would, again, recommend checking out both of these books. These Both are phenomenal books. It's well worth uh, having it in your library and, and reading it. I think it's also available. I, I saw that it's available on, uh, on Audible, too. So if you like uh, audiobooks, the, uh, you can listen to it also. Idea Stormers is the one that's on Audible. That's the master work for, for uh, people within corporations and their teams. That, that book is particularly good for them. That's the one that's on Audible. Yep. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Brian. Yeah. And thank you, audience. Thank you. Uh, so until next time, audience, uh, keep on checking out all of our episodes on This Week with Sabir. I'm going to keep on producing them uh, you know, and, and hope I'm bringing a lot of value to, to uh, your knowledge. Thank you. And thank you, Brian.